Thank you, church. So pleased to see you all here as we continue on our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so last week we focused on the very words of Jesus that the Bible is authoritative and accurate in every way and that not one word, not one dot would be changed before it fulfilled every word of God by the end of time. Uh, And this week Jesus reveals to us that he has come to fulfill the law and fulfill the prophecy of the prophets. And so why do we preach on this subject? Why does this subject become so important? Well, it becomes so important because God intends for you to be salt and light. Uh, And that means he intends for you to go out into the world and to impact the lost. And so when you go out into the world and people begin to say things about the Bible and about Jesus that they don't understand... Uh, and that, are, that they are ignorant, you have to step up and you have to show them that Jesus fulfills every word of the Bible. He has completed the law and he has completed the prophecies. And you need to be able to do this. So I'm hopeful that this message will resonate in your heart, that you will continue to reflect on it. Uh, you can get the sermon notes afterwards if you choose to do so and you study it. And that's, that is really what this message is all about. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish the law uh, or, or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them, to fulfillment. And so in, in this categorical statement by our Lord and Savior, he tells us that he intends to fulfill in the entirety every word of the law and every prophecy given by the prophets related to him. And so really, that's what I want to drill down to you today. In what sense, really? In what sense did Jesus fulfill the law and fulfill the prophecy? And so there is only one sense that we can say, really, that Jesus fulfilled the law, and that is he fulfilled the law by dying on the cross and thereby satisfying forever the very demands of the law uh, against those who would not believe in him and those who would believe in him. And so certainly we see that Jesus fulfill the law because he kept it perfectly. The Bible tells us he never sinned. He lived up to the law in every possible way. And there are verses that back this up. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus Christ was made under the law, meaning he was a human being in every sense, and he fulfilled every step and order of the law. In fact, when you see Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, uh, by John the Baptist, and, uh, and you see that, uh, what you see here is that Jesus is saying uh, to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 15, but John the Baptist says, no, this is not right. I cannot baptize you. You must baptize me. And Jesus says to him, no, that's not true. And he says there uh, very, very clearly, he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Imagine that, the creator of the universe coming to earth in the form of a human being and saying it is appropriate to fulfill all righteousness. And so this is what he had in mind from the very creation of the world, that he would come and fulfill all righteousness, doing all the things that we would have to contend with as human being. And so Jesus came primarily to, draw, to die on the cross and cancel the very claims of the law 
uh, on, as to those who would receive him in every possible way. Now, this is taught by the law itself. And so you see, when the law was given by God to Moses, at the same time he gave the law, he gave the lamb. He tied it together. Here is the law. You will not be able to live under the law, but I give you the lamb, which will be the atoning sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice at the very beginning. And so in ancient Israel, the the law and the sacrifices went hand in hand, and God arranged it that way. And so when men sinned before the law, they knew that the only way that they could get atonement and repentance would be to have a substitutionary sacrifice. And so this pointed as a foreshadowing of the very role that Jesus Christ would have, the once and perfect atoning sacrifice, and that we would never need another animal sacrifice, as millions of animals were sacrificed for our sins, for the sins of those at that time, uh, to cancel guilt. But, But now we have the once and perfect. And so God prepared man for this truth. You need a savior. And I've drilled that home to you for 1,500 years as I've given you these sacrificial laws and the atoning laws. And so it's very important to understand it. So these, these issues, this preparation by God was a signpost of the coming of Christ. Here it is, 1,400 years before Christ would be born, that God is preparing the people of Israel and eventually the world for what would point to Jesus. God gave them that long a period of time to prepare their hearts for what they needed to do. It was very simple. Sin meant death. It's that simple. Sin meant death. You either atoned by way of a substitutionary sacrifice or you died. And that's the message that the world has to understand. There is no way to God. There is no way to escape the eternity of God unless somehow you have accepted Jesus Christ. That's the nature of what God has done. And so we need to drill that to a world that doesn't understand it. They don't understand that sin means death. There's no question about it. That's what we've come come to. And so just as that animal sacrifice was innocent in every way and died for the sins of the human beings at that time, Jesus Christ was innocent in every way, in the same way fulfilling the law and died for us. And so God had built a conditioned reflex, really, into the people so that they would come to understand that. Sin, death, sin, atonement, sin, substitutionary sacrifice. He took centuries, really, centuries to teach this great spiritual truth. And yet, just like humanity, many of them never got it. And so Christ fulfilled the law Uh, by dying on the cross, but he also fulfilled the law by completing the prophecies and fulfilling the prophecies that are right through Scripture in every way. And so when we speak of prophecy in this regard, we're speaking of those statements made by the prophets in the Old Testament. And, And these prophecies come to us at the time of Christ that preceded him by about 1,400 years. Now, this is a huge subject. This is a subject that could take me many hours to cover, and I don't want you to get nervous. I'm not going to do that this morning, all right? I'm going to distill this into one message uh, that will be about 30 minutes long, and I will focus as I do this 
on five prophecies so that when you leave here, you can remember it. Because my father always used to say that when you ask people after church, how was the message? And they say, great. And then you say, what did he preach? And they say, hmm, I really don't remember. But it was pretty good. Well, that's not my role for you. When you leave here, I want you to remember what I'm saying. I want it to resonate in your heart because I want you to be able to go outside and tell a lost world what it's all about. Well, the first prophecy that we're going to talk to is the first prophecy in Scripture. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15. Uh, and this is a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it is interesting that the prophecy is not spoken to Adam. It's not spoken to Eve. It's not spoken to Moses or to Abraham. This prophecy is spoken directly to Satan. That's who this prophecy is spoken to. As Satan has uh, encamped within the Garden of Eden and brought Adam and Eve down through sin, and so now God speaks directly to Satan in this verse, Genesis 3, verse 15, and he says there, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seeds and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What an amazing prophecy. In one word, so much is taking place there as God is indicating. First of all, he's indicating that there will be enmity between the woman and Satan, and that it will be the seed of the woman who will come into direct contact with, this, with Satan. Notice that. Now, you don't ever see the seed of the woman being used in that expression because the normal expression is the seed of the man, all right? The seed of the man. But here, the seed of the woman is given because Jesus would be born of a virgin birth. And so as a human aspect of it, it is the seed of the woman because God, through the Holy Spirit, will supply the other part of, of that equation. But the seed of the woman is what Mary would supply. And so it's a very interesting prophecy. Now here it says is that uh, he shall bruise your head, meaning he will ultimately destroy you, your head, the very entity of who you are. You will bruise his heel, meaning you will damage him. You will hurt him. And effectively, we know as a result of thousands of years later that it meant that at the cross, Satan would apparently have victory as, as Christ would be crucified, not realizing that it would not be victory, that this would be a momentary uh, uh, equation of death. And instead, in three days, Jesus would rise from the dead. He would defeat death. And when he came and rose like that, he defeated Satan at that very moment. Absolutely. You can clap for that. It's an important prophecy. It's an important thing that we understand this. And so here it is thousands of years before, at the very dawn of creation, God is prophesying about what will happen. And Jesus will fulfill this in every way. Now, another prophecy that we have to study here uh, is found in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, and this is a prophecy given to Abraham. And you know the story. Abraham is directed to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, to show that he honors God, to sacrifice it to God. Uh, and Abraham, although he had waited 100 years, 100 years for this child to be born, he's now 100 years old, uh, he's, he waits, and in obedience to God, he starts a journey that will end when God tells him 
to sacrifice his son. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 22, if you would, please. Turn beginning to verse 9. And when they reached the place that God had told him about, and that is Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah would be the present-day Jerusalem on the very hill that Jesus ultimately would die on the cross. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Underline that. Your son, your only son, because God is now speaking prophetically about what would take place 2,000 years later. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place The Lord will provide. How about that? The Lord will provide. Yes, he would provide because in 2,000 years he would provide the once and forever living sacrifice of Jesus Christ at that very moment. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the cities, uh, sand on the seashore. Your, your descendants will take possession of the cities of the enemies and through your offspring, underline it, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. What do you believe and understand that to be through your offspring? Through your offspring was Jesus Christ, because Abraham would be in the very lineage of Jesus Christ, and it would be the subsequent birth of Jesus Christ and the subsequent sacrifice on that very hill as God would provide forever this sacrifice. And so we understand this event portrayed today in a way that the patriarch understood that God would one day call his own son, just as Abraham was called to give his son and sacrifice it, but God said no. But God would call his son, and God would sacrifice his son for us. And it would take place right there through his death on the cross to all who succeeded. And so it's important to understand what that blessing was that God was saying to Abraham. He wasn't speaking about a human blessing. He wasn't talking about his human lineage. He was talking about the fact that Jesus Christ would come through through his own lineage. And the Apostle Paul pointed this out clearly later uh, uh, in Galatians 3, verses 13 to 16, that clearly the seed was the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the blessing promised was to prove Christ's great work of redemption. And so you understood that, that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and revealed that to him. And so here you see a great prophecy given 2,000 years before coming to fruition. Now we next turn to the Psalms, where we find great prophecies. David himself was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, And Peter mentioned this at the very day of Pentecost, and we're going to talk about that. 
David probably understood more about the coming significance of Jesus Christ, probably more than anyone else in the Old Testament other than Isaiah. In Psalm 22, and I commend that to you to read, which is an extraordinary psalm, uh, we see in a, a description of Christ's death by crucifixion. Now, this is 1,000 years before Jesus would be born. It is 800 years before crucifixion would be invented as a form of death. And listen what David writes in the psalm there, using colorful language. He said, I am poured out like water. You know that's what happened at the cross. My bones are all out of joint. Yes, Jesus did not have one bone broken. Not one bone broken, just like the Passover lamb. But his bones, his shoulder bones were out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like an old pot that is broken. Uh, He was unbelievably consumed with thirst. They divided my garments among them. Now listen to that. They divided my garments among them, meaning that at the cross, these miscreants who would be putting Jesus on the cross, these Roman soldiers would effectively take his clothing and divide it up amongst themselves. And that is exactly what they did. And cast lots for my clothing. Now notice how that is separated. There's the dividing part, and then there's the casting lots. What does it mean? Well, there was one piece of clothing that Jesus had, the outer garment, that could not be divided up. And so they cast lots for this. The soldiers themselves at the foot of the cross casting lots. And so he was picturing the very crucifixion 1,000 years before it would take place prior to the event. Uh, And so uh, crucifixion would not be invented really uh, by the Romans until about 200 B.C. And so here, here God through David in a prophecy is picturing this event. The world needs to understand this. Look, we're not here by accident. We're not worshiping a Jesus that comes to us by fairy tales or fables. We're we're worshiping a Lord and Savior whose name was written in the very stars before creation took place, who agreed to come as our sacrifice. And the world needs to understand this. And this is your role to be able to do this. Clearly, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David saw the death of Jesus. Now, it is not only the crucifixion, really, that David pictured. Uh, he also foretold the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's equally incredible. And he saw the fact that the body of Christ would not decompose during the time it was in the earth, in the tomb. Uh, he wrote this uh, in Psalm 16, verse 10. And there he said, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Can you imagine that? You would never hear that said about any other person. No other person who would die and would be placed in a, in a tomb would be free of decay. Only Christ, only the Messiah, and David saw it because they understood that Jesus Christ would be resurrected. Now, Peter in one of the great passages in, in the New Testament, and turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. As you see, Peter, right after the day of Pentecost, speaking to the crowd below, 
Uh, and this to me is an, a dramatic moment indeed, and let's understand it. I, I was at the upper room when I visited Israel, and I saw what that was, how it was about 15 feet above the street, and the streets are narrow, and you can imagine. Now, the, the Christian church, the 120 of them are gathered in this room, and they've been praying, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down and descend and start the church age. And so now, the, Jerusalem is filled probably with about one million people because of the high holy days. And so people from all over the world are in Jerusalem because they have to do this in order to celebrate the sacrifices. And so suddenly, the Holy Spirit descends on the 120, and there are cloven tongues of fire throughout that room. And the entire church, the entire New Testament church, the entire Christian church begins speaking in foreign tongues. Not tongues that could not be understood, but tongues that would speak the very language of the people in the street. And we understand from the Bible that there were people from 40 different countries and that every one of them heard not only their home tongue spoken, but they even heard the dialects of the area that they were spoken. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what God does. This is how he reaches out to them. And so they're hearing this message preached to them about Jesus Christ. And now Peter will step up, and he will step up. And this is the same Peter who really about three months before uh, repudiated Jesus, denied him, and now you're going to see a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is my desire for all of you because you have the Holy Spirit within you. God has given you. I want, to, want you to see what happens when you give sway to the Holy Spirit and what Peter says. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and what a great prophecy this is. Again, tying in the Old Testament. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He's speaking to the Jewish nation. He's speaking about what they did. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, David said this about him. And now Peter is going to repeat the very prophecy of David. And he says there, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And there you see it. Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, repeated there as the great prophecy of David is given to the Jewish nation right after the day of Pentecost. What a powerful message from the Holy Spirit. This is the message that we have to give to the world. Look, what we're doing here is not studying fables or fairy tales. We are studying the very essence of life, and we have to give this to a world that doesn't understand it. And now the final passage that I want to speak to you about is probably the greatest single prophecy in the Old Testament. It is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. 
It is great because it explains the very significance of the death of Christ, the very essence of the substitutionary death. What does it mean? Why did he come? Why did he have to die? Why did an innocent man have to go to the cross? Why did Christ have to die on a cross? Why did God allow this? And here it is. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. And you know this was the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading that he didn't understand. Well, you're going to understand it today through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says there, quote, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Amen, church? With his stripes, we are healed. The very agony and passion of Christ, the very suffering of Christ was for you, was for me, that this would be the only way we'd come into the presence of God. Sin has to be dealt with in death. And Jesus Christ was effectively that one-time perfect sacrifice. And so here, what is prophesied here? More than 700 years, really, 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, that the coming one, the very seed of Abraham himself, in the beginning of God's dealing with the human race, would come so that we might be healed and live forevermore. Now, this is the very theme of the Old Testament. Uh, and yet, there is a historical side to the Old Testament. And so we read the Old Testament as we see the history of the Jewish people and God dealing with them. But the more important side of the Old Testament is the spiritual side, the recognition that God is doing a mighty work and bringing, bringing the Savior uh, to save the human, the human uh, species. And so the theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus Christ. He is embedded in every chapter. He is embedded from Genesis to Revelation. Don't you ever forget it and be able to tell the world what this is about. And so what we have seen here, what was happening at the cross, is that Jesus Christ was enduring in his own body the penalty of sin for me and for you. That's what he was enduring. That's what we will celebrate on Easter, what he did. The law condemns sin. There is no way to escape the condemnation of the law. It is death. It is only avoided through the perfect substitutionary sacrifice once and for all for Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus could say that he came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the prophets in every way. The punishment is death, and that is why he died. Now, even in the extraordinary way that Jesus died, uh, it fulfills the Old Testament types. If you would read the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus, you will find over and over again uh, the nature of the burnt offerings, the nature of the sacrifices, the nature of the ceremonial washings. Take a look when you get home and read Leviticus 16 if you want to see a passage about what it was necessary to do on the Day of Atonement, and your head will explode because you will say, we could never do this. And God was telling him, that's right, you can't do this. Wise up. I'm giving you the law, not that the law will save you, but that the law will direct your attention to the fact that you need an atoning sacrifice. 
You can't live the law. It was never meant to be equal to grace. And let's understand that. The law was never considered equal to grace. The law was never meant to save man. Rather, it was meant to let man know he cannot keep the law. He cannot keep the holiness of God. This is how holy our sovereign God is and that this is what he demands. And so ultimately, looking at the law and looking at the prophecy, we see in every way the fulfillment of Christ. We understand what he did, and we understand through the grace of God giving us Jesus Christ, allowing us to accept the gift of Christ, to be forgiven forever in our sins, to be able to join with God in heaven. And we understand the nature of the substitutionary doctrine of the atonement. Uh, and, and this emphasizes in every way what the scripture is all about. All of the Old Testament types have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ in every possible way. Look, this is a message that we need to convey to a lost world. You need to convey it one-on-one. -on -one. You need to convey this to your family and to your friends. You need to articulate this. You need to memorize this. You need to take it into your body and become familiar with these passages, and you need to be able to speak about it. Uh, and so people will understand, look, there's not a thousand ways to God. How could there be a thousand ways to God? It beggars my, my mind a thousand ways. God would make Jesus this sacrifice, pinning him to the cross and putting thousands of years of prophecy together so that we, in our own philosophical element of our brain, can find a separate way to God? I repudiate that. And you need to be able to bring that to the attention of people in love, in love. Look, don't go around saying you're going to hell because they are going to hell. But the point is, God doesn't want you to deal with them in that way. You look at it the way Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman at the well, knowing full well that she'd been married five times before, living with a man, and Jesus never really condemned her as a loser. He reached out to her in love. You need to inform the world that this is what they need to know about their Lord and Savior. This is your Jesus. This is your God. And so here's the point. This is why Jesus said in those verses, your, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. How does that happen? It happens through the Holy Spirit. That's how your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because they were bound to the law and the law would never save them. But you are not bound to the law. You are bound to Jesus Christ and the grace of God that saves you forever in every possible way. Look, Christ's way, the way of Jesus is more challenging than this legalistic system. Uh, it's more rewarding, all right? Because now we understand that there's a spiritual element to the law that they never considered. They were so concerned with the minutia of the law, specifically defining murder in a separate way, that they never countenanced the fact that God talked about the spiritual side of that, the anger, the hatred, the contempt, all of that wrapped around that terminology of murder, far greater than the physical act. And that's what Jesus calls us to, and we can only fulfill this through the grace of Jesus Christ, through the blood of our Savior, washing us in every way. Uh, and so this becomes an important understanding of our theology. And so the Sermon on the Mount lays the foundational background of, just, of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith and sanctification 
through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That is woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Small wonder, small wonder that Paul, the greatest of Pharisees, the most devout Pharisee you could come to see, when he considered, when he considered uh, what Jesus did in the spiritual aspect of Jesus, said that he considered everything that he had done spiritually before as rubbish, as rubbish, accounting for nothing because he understood what the grace of Christ was to be. He, his new desire was to gain Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but one which is from God and by faith in Christ. And read it when you get home. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. What a powerful statement. How God has loved us. How God has affirmed us. How God has lifted us up. How God has given us hope. How God has said that he has saved you. And that he will save your family. He will save his friend, your friends. Recognizing that there's only one way. One way. Through acceptance of that perfect sacrifice. That was articulated thousands of years before. And is woven through the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. Our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads, Lord. Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you, Father, for our Christ. I thank you for giving us this chance to come to you, Father, through, through our Lord and Savior, that you have reached out to humanity and given us a life preserver that we don't deserve, that we don't deserve, but that you have given us because you love us. And that as you excused Abraham from sacrificing his own son, you, however, gave your son you gave him so that we could be saved. Lord, help us, Father. Help us to be able to articulate to a world that desperately needs it, to be able to explain that sin equals death and that there's only one way, one way to you, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen, church. Amen, church. Thank you, Pastor John.